0: ratchet book club where we read hood classics and good classics i'm derek 916-633-1537 ratchet and ratchet at gmail.com ratchet book club on twitter ratchet book club on facebook chapter 15 when carter opened the door to see his son standing before him he frowned he opened it and pulled him inside what's going on like is it really hard for y'all to say that phrase without Saying it like that because it's not hard for me. And yet I was moved by the I was led by the spirit as black folks say in church before they tell everybody about how they're sleeping with the pastor. During altar call, when everybody goes to the front to pray, and how they're pregnant by him. And how they're just barely scraping by and how he's been using the church's funds to uh, help them to be able to get an abortion but they've actually been using that money to uh, buy food because again just scraping by what's going on no okay just checking what's going on carter asked he stepped out onto the front porch and saw me and sitting in her car stoically she was looking straight ahead as if she were in a trance carter immediately knew that something was wrong Go in and get comfortable, man. I'll be right back, Carter said as he slipped into his loafers and stepped out into the night. Mia Moore was the only person who knew exactly where to find him. As soon as he found out his son was still alive and would be living with Mia Moore in L.A., he had purchased a modest spot in West Hollywood. He spent the majority of his time in Colorado, out of sight, where he could have peace of mind, but he planned to make the trip to Cali every weekend to see his son. He walked out and approached her. He could tell by her body language that something bad had happened. He opened the door and knelt down beside the car. Mia, he said. There was just something about this woman that he found completely endearing. Which is like wild because she's literally a murder bot. And everybody else who gets too close to her kind of dies. Every other guy that's been around her kind of dies. But you find her endearing. That's like... I don't even have a a, a good, I don't, I don't even have a good, like, I don't, I don't even have a good metaphor for that. Like you just, you're in love with a murderer. Yeah. He hated that he had to hate her because all he really wanted to do was love her. I, I should read that the way it should be written. He hated that he had to hate her because all he wanted to do was love her. She gripped the steering wheel as thoughts of indecision, regret, and sadness filled her. Even when she tried to be better, trouble always followed her. "'When you got shot in Vegas, we thought it was Baraka's order,' me and Moore whispered. She looked into Carter's eyes as she finished. It wasn't. It was Fly. Carter stood to his feet, looking at her, shocked. "'And you fucked with him after the fact? He shot me and you became his bitch?' We were going through the divorce. Did you set it up? No, she shouted. She stepped out of the car. I don't care what happens between us. I would never want to see you dead. You know me better than that. I'm going to murk that nigga, Carter threatened. Mia Moore quickly responded. It's already done. And, and that's the other thing that's irritated me about this book in particular, this specific book. Is that the confrontations that should happen don't happen because somebody else who has nothing to do with the actual confrontation steps in and takes care of it. So like with Baraka and Fly Boogie, that wasn't Fly Boogie's body to create. And with Fly Boogie and me and Moore, that wasn't me and Moore's body to murk. Like that should have been Carter and Fly because he was like, We're gonna have this conversation later. That should have been their time. Also, does that mean that Baraka's men are no longer going to be looking for them because Fly Boogie's dead, and so that kind of deads everything? What did CJ see? Carter asked. Nothing, Mia assured him. What did he hear? Carter shot back. Nothing, she responded again. Mia Carter said with urgency as if he didn't believe her. Nothing, Carter. He saw nothing. He knows nothing, she guaranteed. That was your man, Carter said. That was a mistake. A desperate attempt to replace a piece of my heart that you still own. You are my man, Miamora replied as she looked at him desperately, her chest heaving up, then down. You'll always be my man. Carter knew that living without Miamora at his side cannot truly be called living. Without her, his life was calm, settled, ordinary, and safe. He knew he shouldn't want her. But he couldn't deny himself of her presence anymore. If loving her meant allowing danger to creep back into his life, then so be it. No matter how hard he tried to get her out of his system, he could never fully shake her. Moore was like good dope. He just kept coming back. He rushed her, pushing her against her car and kissed her passionately. She exhaled in relief as he wrapped his arms around her waist. This was home for her. He was home for her. They were each other's compass, and for the past three years, they had been lost. Me and Moore was tired of fighting fate. With him was the only place she wanted to be. You're going to be the death of me, Carter whispered, knowing that when his time did come, it would be because of something me and Moore had done. That's fucked up. Like, dude, you're a kingpin. There's a million ways you could die. I like telling folks. Because I'm a dick. I like telling folks, there's a million ways you can die and only one of them is in your sleep. Good luck. And so, for you to say that you, the way you're going to die, you're certain that it's going to be me and Moore's fault, is literally shitty. Like, that's a shitty thing to say. Hey, when I die, just keep in mind, it's on you. And you only. Okay? Thumbs up. It was just who she was. She wasn't his strength, but his weakness. The euphoria that came from loving her made the inevitable worth it, however. It was easy to love someone when they were doing everything right. He had punished her when he had seen the worst version of her. After killing Yasmin, he had shunned her, blamed her for it all, when in actuality, they had all played their part in that disaster. He wanted to love her, right or wrong, ride with her the way that she had ridden for him tonight. Where's the body? He asked. At the house still? She nodded. He pulled her close and kissed her forehead. Go inside. I'll have it taken care of. Where the fuck is Sam? Where is Sam? I mean, we know that she's a fed, but he doesn't know she's a fed, so where's Sam? He watched her walk inside, and he pulled out his phone to put in the call to his cleanup crew. How does he have a cleanup crew in L.A.? He just bought the spot. They would make Miamore's indiscretions disappear. It was reasons like these that he was wary of their reunion. Already she had more blood on her hands. He hadn't been involved in anything illegal in years. He was trying to live his life right so his son never had to pay for his own bad deeds. But here he was, letting Miamor lead him back into the darkness. Carter just wanted his entire family out of the game. As soon as this one deed was taken care of, He promised himself that he would take Mia and and his son back with him to Colorado, where they could all lead a normal existence. Well, would you look at that, Sam said as she sat inside the inconspicuous car that was parked curbside up the block from Carter's place. Looks like he's cheating on you, her partner, Jacob, said with a chuckle. It was a joke, but Sam felt a jealousy stirring inside. It was something about deceiving Carter that made her job feel even more rewarding. She wanted him to love her as much as he possibly could before she finally put her cuffs around his wrists. She couldn't lie. It was hard not to fall for Carter Jones. On paper, he was a ruthless dictator of an infamous drug empire, but in the flesh, he was a king. He was considerate, generous, private, and gentle. She didn't love him. But she didn't hate him either, and seeing his connection with the infamous leader of the Murder Mamas stirred an animosity within her. It didn't matter that what they had was an act. If it had been real, Carter would be betraying her in this moment. That's okay. That girl right there is the key to his downfall. Without her, he's a good man. With her, he's just who I need him to be to build this case. Three years is a lot of time to be in those mountains. I'm ready to be off this case, so however I can get him, I'll take it. I'm going to fry his ass. That feeling. <sighs> the amazing feeling that pulsed through Mia Moore as she rode next to Carter in the back seat of the blacked-out SUV made her smile. He held her hand, intertwining their fingers as if he were afraid she would disappear if he didn't hold on to her. We got a lot to work out. We need to sit down and put everything on the table, Carter whispered. Miamor nodded. I know, but I don't care how hard it is. We'll work it out, talk it out, fight it out, whatever. I just want this, she said as she stared sincerely at him. CJ sat in the front seat, bugging the driver with all types of questions as they headed for the airport. This was how it was supposed to be all along. This felt like perfection. Do I need to worry about the therapist? How serious is that situation? Miamor asked. Carter shook his head. Once you learn that you don't have any competition when it comes to my heart, you'll be good, ma. That was a problem with Yasmin. You weren't sure. This time you can be. Sam isn't an issue. I'll dead that. You have my word, he promised. He pulled her in for a kiss. Uh, dad? CJ called as he pointed straight ahead. Carter looked forward and frowned when he noticed a caravan of cars pull out in front of them, blocking their paths. Instinct kicked in as both Carter and Myanmar reached for their guns. Latino goons jumped out of cars. They were outnumbered and outgunned as the men surrounded the cars, guns drawn and hanging at their sides. Who the fuck are they? Myanmar asked. One of the men stepped up and shouted, I'm looking for Carter Jones. We can do this the easy way and have a conversation like gentlemen, or I can sick my dogs on you and get at your wife and kid in the process. I don't know. Carter said as he popped open his car door. Back up. Drive through them if you have to. Take them to the airport. What are you doing? Mia Moore shouted as she opened her door as well. Carter pulled her back inside the car. I'll meet you at the cabin, he said. One gun or two, we're still on the losing end of this. Get in the car. His tone of voice left no room for negotiation. She slammed her door. You better meet us up there, she said as tears filled her eyes. If something happens to you, it won't, Carter said. He passed me a more of the gun and their fingers touched. She closed her hand around his, tears forming in her eyes as he pulled away from her and closed the door. Sam and Agent Jacobs watched in complete shock as a pillowcase was slipped over Carter's head and he was stuffed into the back of one of the cars. Do we want to intervene here? This looks gang affiliated, Jacobs said. No. No. can handle himself. We'll fall back until I hear from him. He's bringing me and more Jones and their child to Colorado. I'm sure I'll be receiving a breakup call soon, Sam said. Sam had no idea what business Carter had with an L.A. street gang, but it was all just one more stone to put in the pile that she was building. All incriminating evidence was good. She didn't want to swoop in and blow her cover until the time was just right. By that time, Carter will be in too deep to make a harrowing escape like he did the last time. There will be no missteps, no forgetting to Mirandize him, no hung jury. This time, Carter and the entire cartel will lose, and justice will be served. The smell of weed filled the air, and Carter's Italian shoes echoed against the concrete floor as he was escorted into the warehouse. His face was still covered, but he was unusually calm considering the circumstances. The pillowcase was snatched away, and Carter stood in front of a man at a desk. A cigar hung out of the corner of his mouth. He didn't even look up at Carter when he began speaking. I gave a package worth a hundred grand to a kid named Fly Boogie. He chuckled and shook his head in amusement. I'll never understand the nicknames you people give yourselves, he said. I'm from the old school, Mexico. We had respectable names back then. Anyway... You're literally talking to a dude named Carter. No nickname, except for Young. And you're telling him about Fly Boogie. And like you don't understand the nicknames that you people give yourselves. But... Anyway, it disheartens me to find out my package was put in the hands of an 8 year old boy. Your 8 year old boy. He paused to finally look at Carter. He got caught with it. And my product is now in the hands of the LAPD. This angers me. Somebody owes me a debt. And seeing as how Fly Boogie was stupid enough to put my drugs in the hands of a kid, I can't work with him. Imagine my surprise when I did my research and find out that the little boy who got caught with my drugs is the son of the legendary Carter Jones. 100000 is nothing. I'll cover my son's debt, Carter said. Of course you will. I've asked around. You've built quite the reputation in this business. I don't want your money, the man said. I want a partnership. You see, I'm in appeals. But with a supplier like you, I could easily take over with the cocoa. <laughs> the cocoa. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I know it's cocaine, but they literally spelled it C-O-C-O with the cocoa. I could easily take over with the cocoa. Sometimes, we leave it out in the sun, and then it's hot cocoa. I'm sorry, I'm done. If you've done your research, you should know that I'll take kindly to ultimatums, Carter said, tensing. He felt naked without his gun, but strapped or not, no one was about to railroad him into anything. Ultimatum is a strong word spoken by enemies. That's not the direction I'm looking to go with this. I'd rather have your friendship. My name is Josiah, and I'm much more deadly than you think. I own this city. I don't take losses, no matter how minuscule. I prefer to call this a proposition. I will consider your son's debt paid if you agree to supply me with 1,000 kilos. A one-time deal, the man said. Carter was unmoved by the quantity. He had moved ten times that amount in the course of his street tenure. I'm out of the game. I don't move that way anymore, Carter resisted. If Fly Boogie was still alive, Carter would have never considered paying the debt. He wasn't the type of man to be bullied into anything. This was inherited debt, and it was being placed on his seed. He would have to make a right just off GP. Money isn't an object. Whatever's owed, I'll cover. But I don't get my hands dirty like that these days. I get it. You're trying to raise your boy trying to steer him from the path you chose, that his mother chose. You don't know his mother, Carter interrupted, tired of the banter. You don't know my life, my family. Your research didn't tell you that I'll kill every motherfucker in this building over my wife and my son. You don't want to get into this with me. Carter was always so calm under pressure. He stood in a warehouse full of armed members of Josiah's army, but he was unafraid. Josiah wouldn't kill him, at least not this day. Not where he stood. Carter's running the game had earned him at least that much. But Josiah was politely warning him. See, the thing is, Carter, I believe you, Josiah said. The way you handled the Haitians years ago. The way Baraka was killed not by you, but by your flunky. The way your wife and her murder mamas almost destroyed your precious cartel. How does he know who killed Baraka? How did he know about Fly Boogie killing Baraka? Wait. Oh, okay. So Josiah is the nigga who initially invited Fly Boogie out to work with him and took to the party where Fly Boogie killed Baraka. Makes sense. Okay. I don't know why he didn't get retribution or revenge way back when Fly Boogie first killed Baraka, but okay. Okay. The way your wife and her murder mom has almost destroyed your precious cartel. I believe that a war between us would be hard fought, but you won't take it there. I have in my possession photos that can do more damage than any bullet. He picked up a manila envelope and pulled out enlarged photos. He held them out to Carter. Carter didn't take them. Josiah flicked them out one by one out of his palm and onto the floor. Carter glanced down and saw Mia Moore standing with a gun pointed at a fly boogie. It was pictures of her from just the night before committing murder. We keep a close eye on people we do business with, Josiah said. You do this for me. Get me the thousand kilos and I will make those pictures disappear. If not, the LAPD will have a warrant for her arrest by morning. There it was. Me and Moore. She was his Achilles heel. Carter smirked and then turned around and strolled out the way he had come in. I'll be in touch, he said just before making his exit. Damn, he uttered just as soon as he stepped foot outside. He immediately pulled out his phone and sent Monroe a text. I'm coming to Miami. Be ready for me. Carter looked around, unaware of where the hell they had taken him. He gritted his teeth in frustration as he began to walk. He wanted to put as much distance between him and his enemy as he could. He said y'all weren't enemies, though. He had walked away from all of this three years ago. Now here he was, deeper in the streets than ever before. It was such a tangled web and he suddenly realized why they called the dope game the trap. Because once you stepped in, there was only one true exit. The grave. Carter only hoped he wasn't dancing on his. How convenient. Just as he's about to ride away scot-free and and break up with Sam and leave her with literally no evidence of anything. Josiah calls and is like, I got pictures of this murder. Like, really did you put cameras in fly boogie's house like did you have somebody with a camera telescope lens like a mile away i don't know how telescope lenses work like how far but let's say 400 feet away just aimed at his back window just in case something happened like seriously this whole thing is just so coincidental that it is borderline ridiculous Chapter 16 The sounds of the waves whispered loudly as Zaire sat on the 50-foot yacht in the middle of the Atlantic. He was anchored 25 miles off the coast of Miami. It was the only place he could find solace. Zaire hadn't slept in months. The closer the feds got to closing their case, the more he was plagued by insomnia. When his body absolutely couldn't take any more, his eyes would close against his will only to pop back over from the nightmares of his betrayal. He had never thought he would be the man he had become. He had put a bullet in Ace's head years before for the very same act of deceit. He was ashamed of himself. Zaire Rich, a federal informant. It didn't even make sense in his own mind. His love for Breeze had changed him. He was most loyal to her, but by being so, he was giving the middle finger to the very man who had saved him. He knew that Breeze wasn't to blame. Her love was the purest thing he had ever felt but he still faulted her. They had become distant. He couldn't even look at her without feeling a bit of disdain. He hated that he loved her so much. The conflictions that tortured his psyche made him wish he had never met her. But at the same time, he couldn't see himself without her. It was the mystery of falling in love with a girl like Breeze. The depth of his commitment to her knew no limits. He was sacrificing his character by protecting her. The sun blazed down over him as he sat, hunched over, elbows on his knees in deep contemplation. He gripped his phone in his hands. I should just tell him, Zaire thought. Give him a heads up that the feds are on him. Tell him about Sam. Zaire knew that once he admitted to Carter what he had done, their friendship would never recover. There was no gray with a man like Carter, only black and white. You were either a stand-up guy or you weren't, friend or foe, ally or enemy. Zaire crossed a line that led to the other side. He would have to remain there. His heart felt empty, raw, and as he sat there, he knew that what he had done was unforgivable. He had single-handedly destroyed a bond that had taken a lifetime to build. As long as Zaire could remember, Carter had been his friend, his brother, his mentor, He pinched the bridge of his nose to stop the emotion from welling in his eyes. Damn. Pinching the bridge of your nose really is a cure-all. Stress. Migraines. Emotions. Takes it all out. I've tried it like multiple times. It doesn't help me remember. It doesn't help me do shit. He couldn't remember the last time he had shed tears. But the gut-wrenching battle being waged on his conscience was enough to cause a lone tear to escape. I mean, I'm pretty sure Carter's going to forgive him because, I mean, he forgave money when money literally shot up his house with his pregnant wife inside. He forgave money when money tried to take him off the streets repeatedly. He forgave money when money just did all sorts of fuckery to him and Zaire and the me more. So, eh, bygones? Hatchet? Fuck this shit, Zaire thought to himself as he located Carter's contact information in his phone. I gotta warn him. Before he could press call, Breeze's face illuminated on the screen. He gritted his teeth at her timing. It was like she had sensed him. They were so connected, despite the fact that they weren't even together, she knew that he needed to hear her voice. Zaire knew that the lovely melody of her tone would talk him out of warning Carter, so he declined the call. Sending her the voicemail. It was an impossible choice to make. His best friend or his wife. His wife or the nigga who had taught him everything. Breeze or Carter. Yeah, we get it. Like, Carter or Breeze. That's not even me making it up. That was literally the next sentence. Jesus Christ. He loved them both dearly. They were probably the only two people he had ever loved and now he had to destroy one to save the other. The pressure was eating him alive. So does he though have to destroy one to save the other because he can just take the blame for the drugs that are in the car that 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 Breeze had. I mean they are his drugs. He is a kingpin in Flint, Michigan, so Breeze called right back, probably shocked at the fact that he hadn't answered. No matter what he was doing or where he was, he always made time for her. She was his priority. Still, he silenced the call. He knew the text would come next. Zai, what's up, babe? Why aren't you answering for me? Breeze. Zaire couldn't take this type of guilt. He made his way to the after the yacht and stood out on the extended deck that hung into the water. I can't take this shit. This shit is too much. No matter what I do, somebody gets hurt. This ain't for me. None of this for me anymore, he thought. He wanted to say that his thoughts weren't his own. That he wasn't thinking clearly. But he was as sharp as they came. Not a thought crossed his mind that he hadn't pondered for some time. He prided himself on remaining focused. Free of inebriation. Of narcotic. To always be on point. It was a lesson Carter had taught him. One of many, in fact. The deep blue rolling waves enticed him. All you gotta do is step off, he told himself. His phone chimed again. I hate that you're out on the yacht by yourself. Be careful. You can't swim. You know I worry. Breeze. Okay, so, now I got questions. Not about Zaire. He's either gonna commit suicide or he's not. Like, whatever. Um, More about Sam and Zaire like Zaire came across Carter Carter, uh, they sat down and had a drink and everything then Carter shot himself in front of Zaire if I recall correctly and ended up in a mental health unit and then Zaire introduced Sam if Carter hadn't tried to kill himself How would he have introduced them to one another? That was another thing that was really convenient to me. And that means that Carter never actually got therapy. That's fucked up. Zaire closed the text. It was like she could feel he was on the brink. The cold water on his feet caused goosebumps to pop up onto his forearms. It was a beautiful day to die. His death wouldn't erase all that he had done, but at least he wouldn't feel it. He couldn't live with this. He had tried for three years, but the secret was too much to bear. How he wished he had been the one the police had pulled over in his car that day. He would have taken this punishment like a G without a second thought. He knew that should have, could have, would have didn't matter at this point. Life hadn't served up the circumstances that way. I love you so much, B, even when I'm not with you. Zaire for those y'all who are wondering, yes, these are reading just like the quotes in the other books that they decide to stop doing for this book. It was the last message that he would send. He wanted her to know that. Because once he stepped into this ocean, she would question it. She would question everything. She would blame herself for his death. She didn't even get a chance to talk with him yet about the, the pregnancy. Hmm. She would blame herself for his death. And that was the last thing he wanted her to do. He just needed the madness inside his head to stop. He would rather be dead than continue to be a pawn that the feds manipulated. I was going to wait until you came back from Miami to tell you this, but it seems like you need to pick me up. Breeze. She sent a photo to him, and Zaire's breath caught in his throat. It was an ultrasound image. <laughs> I'm so fucking good at this. Zaire couldn't contain the sounds that erupted from him. He couldn't help it. The liquid rolled effortlessly down his face onto the screen of his phone. This time, when she called, he answered. Hey, Daddy, she greeted him playfully. But when she heard him crying, her tone changed. Zaire, what's wrong? She had no idea what that one picture just stopped him from doing. You're pregnant? He asked. He sniffed loudly and regained his composure. You're pregnant, B. "I am, she said with joy. We are, she laughed. (laughs) But I thought, after the damage from Matisse's rape, I never thought we could. Zaire paused as he wiped his face in disbelief. Wow, Ma, I'm so happy. You just saved me, Ma. You saved me. Somebody save me. One of the best intro songs of any show ever. Smallville. She didn't know what he meant, but she could hear the happiness in his tone. She was over the moon. She had waited, just like last time, to tell him because she wanted to be sure. Breeza agonized over the secret for months because she was fearful that it would end in tragedy like the first time. Every time she sat down to pee, she checked her panties for blood. But when she had felt the first flutter inside of her, she knew everything would be all right. The sound of the baby's heartbeat had been music to her skeptical ear, but she still didn't tell Zaire, not until she passed the 12-week mark, not until it was safe. We're having a baby, she said. Aw, man, Zaire said. He was on an emotional roller coaster. It was instinctive for his next words to be, I've got to tell Carter. So, 31%. My bad, I said that wrong. 15% 15% chance of ever being pregnant again. But when it's convenient. 15% chance. Mm, mm, mm. Ain't that something. The mention of Carter's name made Zaire solemn. But he shook it off. He had to cooperate now. Breeze was carrying his child. She had just upped the ante. Okay. I love you, Zaire Rich, she said. Be safe out there. I will be. I love you too. Zaire climbed back onto the main deck of the boat and lifted the anchor before turning the boat around. Turn this boat around. As he headed back towards the Miami shore, he couldn't help but think of his betrayal. I can't help but think about the fact that all of the people in Star Trek have naval uh, ranks. Like, that gets me sometimes. Somebody's a coxswain.. <laughs> um, Carter didn't deserve it. Not after all he had done for him, but it was happening. As he sailed back towards the marina, he couldn't help but think of the way Carter had entered his life. 1995, Flint, Michigan. Zaire hid under his bed as tears flowed down his face. Timidly, he was balled up in a fetal position with both hands over his ears in pure terror. He had soiled pajamas, and his body was sweaty because of the hot summer night. Pure fear had pushed him to urinate on himself involuntarily. He heard the screams coming from his mother's bedroom, and was anticipating the moment that it would stop. His mother's alcoholic boyfriend had yet again gone on a drinking binge, and was in the process of beating his mother. Zaire, only seven years old, couldn't understand why the man his mother loved so much would become such a monster. He didn't understand the effects of alcohol and the inner demons that he usually exposed. Zaire tried to press his hands against his ears and muffle the horrific sounds, but the screams were too loud to drown out. After a few minutes of the arguing and beating, Zaire couldn't take it anymore. He crawled from underneath his bed and tiptoed out of the apartment. After slowly unlocking the door, He then stuck his head out and scoped the apartment's hallway. After seeing that the coast was clear, he ran across the hallway to the door of his older friend, Carter Jones. Zaire, with the blanket in hand, knocked on the door with tears in his eyes. He waited patiently with his head down, hoping that Carter would answer the door. He knocked again and waited. After a minute had passed and he got no response, he turned on his heel and headed back to the hell that he called his home. Just as he reached his door, He heard a chain being slid off the lock, and Carter's door cracked open. Carter stepped out, wiping the sleep out of his eyes and wearing nothing but boxers. Carter squinted to see Zaire and noticed that his friend had been crying. Come on, little homie, Carter said as he waved Zaire into his mother's apartment. Zaire wiped the tears from his eyes, headed across the hall and through the door. Carter was a few years older than Zaire, and Zaire looked up to Carter. He felt a sense of relief when he was around Carter. Carter was home alone since his mother worked the third shift. Zaire looked around the apartment and wished that his mother kept their apartment this nice. Carter had everything. The latest television, leather furniture, and custom carpet that melted in between Zaire's toes every time he walked. Although they were in the projects, while inside Carter's place, it didn't feel like it. Zaire slowly walked in with tears in his eyes. Carter threw his arm around him and guided him to the couch. I wouldn't sit him down though, he just pissed on himself. Zaire always felt safer around Carter, and the horror he had felt just moments before slowly began to fade. That nigga over there again? Carter asked. Zaire only nodded. Aight, Carter said as he nodded. It's all good. You can say tonight over here. He tossed Zaire a pillow and a spare cover. He then turned on the television, knowing that Zaire was afraid of the dark, but would never admit it. Good night, Zaire. Good night, Zaire replied. Carter was halfway to his room when he doubled back. Yo, did that nigga ever hit you, Zaire? Carter asked. No, just my mama, Zaire said. He didn't want to admit that he, too, was a victim of the abuse. He didn't want to look weak in front of his friend. Carter left it alone but he had a feeling that Zaire was lying. "'Come here,' Carter said. "'Let me show you something.' Zaire climbed out from underneath the cover and followed Carter to his room. He watched curiously as Carter pulled a shoebox from under his bed. "'You ever held a gun before, little homie?' Carter asked. Zaire shook his head and looked with wide eyes as Carter pulled out an old thirty-eight. It was raggedy, but it worked. "'You gotta protect your mama, Zaire.' A man protects his family, Carter said as he handed the gun to Zaire. It's yours. So, Zaire was seven at this point. CJ was eight when Fly Boogie gave him a gun. I don't know how old Carter is in this situation, but dude, you can't be getting mad for something you did too, even if it was years before and you forgot because it was back in 95. I would never forget when I gave a seven-year-old a gun. Yeah, I remember the first time I gave a seven-year-old a Megatron-sized blamer. <sighs> For real? Zaire exclaimed as he wrapped his hand around it. It barely fit in his palm, and it was heavier than it looked. He had never shot a gun a day in his life, but just having it made him feel like he was sitting on top of the world. Yeah, it's yours, Carter said. Thanks, man, Zaire replied. Carter nodded. Now tell me the truth. That nigga be hitting on you too? Zaire pulled his shirt off, feeling comfortable enough with Carter to reveal his secret. He turned around and showed Carter his scar-covered back. It looked like someone had used him as a human ashtray. It was so bad that Carter's eyes filled with tears of anger. He burned you with cigarettes? Carter asked. Zaire threw his shirt back on over his head. Not in a while. he just been getting into it with my mama, Zaire said. The next time that nigga even look at you funny, you shoot him. Carter said. Zaire nodded as he aimed the gun at the wall. Boom! Carter yelled, scaring Zaire so bad that he dropped the gun. Carter burst into laughter. First, you gotta learn how to shoot it, Carter said. We can set up some cans on the roof after school tomorrow. I got some bullets. The next day, Zaire awoke early and crept out of Carter's apartment. He was always too embarrassed to stay for breakfast with Carter and his mom, so instead he woke up at the crack of dawn to make his escape. When he entered his apartment, his mood instantly changed. He walked quietly to his mother's door, lifting his tiny hands and knock. He pressed his ear against the door. He knew her boyfriend was gone because he didn't hear his drunken snores. He opened the door and reached for the light switch, but as he flipped it, nothing happened. Ma, Zaire called. Ma, you okay? He walked into the dark room, stepping over empty liquor bottles and empty fast food bags. Ma, he said as he shook her. It wasn't until he got right up on her that he saw why she wasn't responding. Her face was bashed in. Blood covered the pillow and the sheets. Ma, Zaire screamed as he shook her. Ma, wake up. Zaire was sure that she was dead and tears welled in his eyes. Her face was so badly beaten that he didn't recognize her. Zaire ran out. He needed help. His heart beat out of his chest as terror seized him. Where you think you going, little nigga? His mother's boyfriend stood between Zaire and the door. He had a large hunting knife in his hand and a huge sack in the other. Zaire was frozen. His eyes went from the knife to the bag to the devilish look on the man's face. Was he going to cut his mother up? If not, what was the knife and bag for? He wanted to run, but his feet wouldn't move, and he had left the gun at Carter's. Zaire had the feeling he wasn't going to make it out of the apartment. He had seen too much. Please, I won't say nothing, he said. The man stalked over to him and grabbed him by the neck, using so much force that Zaire thought he would snap it. Get your little ass in here, the man barked. I told that bitch about her mouth. I told her. Now look what the fuck she made me do. He tossed Zaire onto the floor, hard, causing his head to hit the corner of the wall. The man climbed on top of him and put his hands around Zaire's neck. Zaire's eyes bulged out of his head and he kicked his legs frantically. He couldn't breathe. His lungs burned so bad as tears rolled out the sides of his eyes onto the dirty carpet beneath him. He was about to die, all because his mother had chosen the wrong man. Zaire felt the blood vessels in his eyes bursting. Seconds felt torturously long until he slowly began to not feel anything at all. Then, the weight of the grown man collapsing on top of his body crushed him. Zaire was too weak to even push him off. He just lay there, only half conscious, on the edge of death. Zai! Zaire! That was Carter's voice. Zaire, wake up! Carter screamed. Mama! Carter pushed the man off Zaire, and pulled Zaire's limp body towards the front door. Mama! The gunshot had lured nosy neighbors into the hall, but none dared go inside. Finally, his mother emerged from her apartment. Carter, what did I tell you about? When she saw her 12-year-old son struggling to carry Zaire to the door, she put her hands over her mouth in disbelief. Call 911. Don't just stand there. Call somebody, she shouted as she rushed inside. Oh my God, what happened? She cried. She heard the groans of the man in the hallway and watched in horror as Carter stood to his feet walked over to the man, and stood over his body. Without remorse, he put a bullet in the man's head just as the cops came swarming in. Put your hands where I could see him, the police yelled. No, Tanya yelled. No. She left Zaire lying there as she ran to Carter. No, you will not arrest my son. He was protecting his friend. Help him, she pointed towards Zaire, who had slipped into unconsciousness. Why? Because he got choked out? Like, is that what's going on? I'm not sure. Her screams fell on deaf ears. They pushed her son against the wall forcefully before placing him in cuffs. Stay with Zaire, Ma, Carter said as they escorted him out. We got another body back here, another officer called out. Tanya stood as she watched the paramedics tend to Zaire. We barely got a pulse. Let's get him in the bus, an EMT yelled. She stood horrified as she watched him load Zaire's small body onto a stretcher while working to save his life. Zaire's eyes fluttered open and he saw Carter being escorted out. He couldn't keep his eyes open long enough to see anything more. The last thing he remembered hearing was someone saying, I'm losing him. Zaire remembered the day as if it had happened just yesterday. If Carter had walked in a minute later, Zaire would be dead. Carter had saved his life. He had killed for him. Due to the evidence against his mother's boyfriend, Carter never served a day in lockup. He was put on probation until the age of 18 and walked away without a felony conviction. Zaire had lost his mother in that day, but he had gained a brother. From that day forward, Zaire and Carter were inseparable. They had always had each other's back, until now. Zaire picked up his phone and sent Carter a text. I love you, fam. Zaire. Fuck you being all sensitive for a little nigga. Carter. Ha! Zaire. I love you too, my G. Carter. They hadn't spoken the words to each other since they were young kids. Ego often caused men to master emotions, but Zaire felt it necessary to say. They were family, and Zaire didn't know how long he had before Carter's love transformed to hate. He reminded himself that he was doing this for Breeze as he stepped off the boat where two federal agents were waiting to wire him up. Chapter 17 The rolling hills of the golf course were the perfect shade of leprechaun green. The country club was full on this Saturday afternoon, and the mild temperatures accompanied by a cloudless day made the perfect combination for tea time. Carter and Zaire stepped into the Ritzi building. Their black skin immediately made them the focal point of the many club members. It was a members-only type of club. This may have been Miami, but it was still the South. It was clear they didn't belong, but they still walked in like they owned the place. Both dressed in designer tailored suits, it was evident they weren't there to step and fetch. I think they missed a period or a semicolon. A semicolon would have worked there. They screamed money real money, long money, not the gold chain wearing flamboyant hood rich type either. They were made men. They had acquired their riches their way, playing by their own rules. Bosses, that's what they were. Black kings, and they knew it. Carter bypassed the reception area and walked right into the fairway, where he knew Estes would be. It was so routine that even the most unworthy adversary could catch him slipping. 9 a.m. tea time every Saturday. It never changed. For over 30 years, he had come like clockwork. Carter and Zaire waited patiently. Keeping a respectable distance as he watched Estes swing. Estes turned and noticed them waiting. He took his time before calling them over. Carter smirked. Even in old age, Estes kept it G. They were on his time. He respected it. Finally, he motioned for them to approach. He held out his hand for Carter to shake. He ignored Zaire. He didn't talk to the help, only the man who wore the crown. You gonna sit back and watch, or you gonna pick up a club, Estes said as he patted his head with a handkerchief that he retrieved from his pocket. This one will do just fine, he said as he handed his own club to Carter. Carter stepped up to the tee, and to Estes' surprise swung the iron like a pro. Estes wagged a finger at him as Carter came back by his side. There's more to you than meets the eye, young man. Lucky shot, Carter said, smiling. Carter looked around and said, you're a little too relaxed, aren't you? You slipping in your old age? He asked only half jokingly. You're too accessible out there. S is huffed as he shined his club. <laughs> the men at part two are my men. The fat fellow over there reading the newspaper, 50 yards out, on that bench? That's Bruno, my henchman. This is me. Don't wonder if there's a backstory about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. No, no, no. The field hands, fixing the lawn, they have guns on their ways. They're my men as well. I don't go anywhere without protection. Damn, Carter thought. He has goons everywhere. Well, you're not here to make me look bad, so speak your piece. Estes was straight to the point. Carter tucked his hands in his pockets. We have a friend who wants to open a bakery, but they don't have access to enough sugar. Carter said discreetly. Too much of a sweet tooth is a bad thing, Estes said. I told Monroe, he thinks that if he sends you, I'll change my position. I assure you, Estes, Monroe has nothing to do with this deal. This is all me, Carter guaranteed. How much sugar do you need? Estes asked. A thousand squares, Carter answered. Must have a lot of goods ready to bake, Estes replied. Can't bake without sugar, Carter confirmed. I suppose not, Estes agreed. I'm buying in bulk, so I'll need a good price, Carter said. Zaire smirked, somewhat glad that Carter wasn't incriminating himself. The wire that he wore beneath his clothes was picking up the entire conversation. Carter hadn't said anything that could be used against him. He hoped it stayed that way. He was doing his part. He was cooperating. It wouldn't be his fault if Carter never gave the feds the evidence they wanted. Doesn't need to be said. I can get a shipment out to you as early as Tuesday, Esther said. There it was. A date for the exchange. It was the exact information that Zaire didn't want Carter to disclose. My man, Carter replied, extending his hand. They shook before Carter and Zaire departed. Zaire was silent and deep in thought as they made their way back to Carter's car. Carter unlocked the doors and then looked over at Zaire. Zaire. You good, Zy? Carter asked. Zyia realized he was wearing his heart on his sleeve. Carter sensed his moody disposition. Yeah, fam, yeah, I'm good, Zaya replied. But the fact was, he had never felt worse. He had turned to the type of nigga he swore he would never be. A snitch. Get rid of this. Throw this tacky shit out. Toss this cheap shit, Mia Moore said to herself as she cleaned out the room the salmon once occupied. Mia Moore was thoroughly enjoying tossing out her things. It had killed her to see another woman with Carter. It had hurt her even more that she couldn't snatch the bitch out of her starter pack Louboutins. She was trying to grow and be a better woman this time around. So instead, she took pleasure in packing up the cardboard box. Basic ass bitch. Mia Moore mumbled with a frown as she tossed a cheap collared shirt into the box with the rest of the worthless items. When she opened the top drawer, she pulled out a shirt and the cell phone fell onto the floor. It can't be this easy. Moore picked it up curiously. Why would she leave her phone, she whispered. It was an old school flip phone, and, and Moore opened it nosily. Before she could snoop, the doorbell rang. Magda, Moore called out to her nanny. She was grateful that the woman had agreed to resume her employment after so many years. Moore didn't trust anyone with her son. So when deciding to hire someone to help with the day-to-day... Her original nanny was the only one who had come to mind. She had paid her a year's salary in advance just to get her to relocate to Colorado. Can you get the door, please? She shouted. And tell CJ that you are his nanny, not his maid. He can clean his own room. See, sí, senora. Magda called back. A few moments later, Magda's voice broke through the air again. Senora, it is for you. Mia Moore snapped the cell phone shut and placed it in her back pocket as she made her way to see who the hell was at her door. She didn't know anyone out here, so this random guess was unexpected. When she rounded the corner, she saw Sam was standing there. Thank you, Magda. Please keep CJ in his room, Mia Moore said, not wanting her son to see her fly off the handle should it come to that. You're just asking me to slap the shit out of you right now. Why are you here? I came for my things," Sam said. Yeah, well, you're a little late. They've been disposed of, Miamore replied. Sam wanted to get inside the house to retrieve the phone. It was her only reason for coming. The feds were close to bringing Carter up on charges. On Tuesday, they would have all the evidence they needed when they intercepted the exchange between Estes and Carter. If Miamore discovered the phone, it may arouse suspicion. Sam was anxious to get it back. Call Carter. He won't mind me coming in to make sure I didn't leave anything. Sam pushed. You don't need to speak with Carter. You're speaking with me. Me Moore said firmly. You don't have any more business with him. Sam chuckled, infuriating Me and Moore. Actually, I'll see him soon. We've got a date that neither one of us can avoid. Why the fuck? <sighs> Sam said slyly. She couldn't help but antagonize Me Moore. She turned to walk away, knowing that she would have the last laugh. Soon, she would have me and more in handcuffs, and all of her tough talk would be used as evidence to convict her. 916 633 1537. Ratchet, and Ratchet gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. You can do that by simply clicking the five star button. Box directly beneath the uh, title of the show. It only takes like literally three seconds. You can also um, leave a review on PodChaser, cut and or copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts. Copy and paste that into Good Pods. Uh, thank you to everybody who's done so. I, I I appreciate it. You can also donate to the show at patreoncom simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash SSCast, or on the Good Pods app, there's a tip jar. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'ma you later. Peace.